All right, kids, have a seat. Uh, I was listening to Lindsay's announcements about the women's Bible study, which is very cool that it's on Sunday mornings because uh, there's child care, but I didn't hear anything about husband care. So um, I'll lead that, and uh, we'll set up a we somewhere while they're doing it. Is that, is that cool? Okay, so uh, I won't tell that joke ever again. All right. So my name is Derek. I'm the pastor here. If you're new with us, always welcome. Um, We're in this series right now called The Story Begins, and it's just the first six Sundays of the year. We're looking at these opening scenes in the life of Jesus, and uh, we're in week two now. And uh, these are just scenes that uh, the writers of the Gospels put down for us to show us who Jesus is. Um, And in some ways, there's not like a lot of extraordinary things that are happening in these stories, but they're just subtle and uh, these deep cuts about uh, who he is, some announcements about himself that he was making, some things that the writers of the Bible were saying about him. And so some of these stories, particularly today, may feel odd, may feel strange, and, um, but it all leads us uh, to some incredible stuff coming up just before Easter. And, of course, it culminates at Easter. But for now, we're just kind of sitting in and listening and watching some of these opening scenes uh, to the story of Jesus. Today we're going to talk about his baptism, which is a very odd, a very odd story. I don't know why God needs to be baptized, but so we'll try to answer that. And, um, but we'll get to that in a moment. Let me pick up where we left off last week. Uh, on the screen, you'll notice that we, we ended with this couple, these couple of verses last week in John chapter 20. This is how John ends his gospel. And essentially, you can see it on the screen there. I don't really have to read it for you, but it, he's saying, Jesus did a lot of other stuff that I didn't even write down. Jesus did all these other things that, for whatever reason, John was not led to put down on paper. And um, so he says that from the beginning. But then he says, but the things I put down in here, I wrote these things down so that you may what? Believe. So he, like, gives you the agenda, although it's at the end of the letter. He gives you the agenda and says, look, I want you to believe this. I want you to believe what we saw. I want you to believe what we were a part of. I want you to believe what we experienced. Now, when the writers of the Bible use the word believe. It is not just about facts and figures, like I believe the sun comes up, or I believe that's a tree, or I believe that this is a church service. Like, it's not just about acknowledging facts, but believing is deeply connected to a transformation of the self, of the mind, of the heart, right? So when you believe in something, and in this case, I think it says at the end of the text, in the name, like when you uh, believing that you may have life in that name, a belief The belief that John's talking about is the kind of belief that leads to a transformation. Like, everything changes. Like, all the old stuff is gone. All the old stuff is dead. And there's this new, renewed kind of thing going on. So when John says, I wrote all this down so that you may believe it, it's not that just you walk away or that I walk away and say, I guess that's true. But it's this deep-seated, like, this is changing me completely. Uh, And so he says that. And then... He promises some kind of, he doesn't really explain it, but there's some kind of life in that belief. Like there's this new, renewed kind of life that comes with that. But he doesn't really explain it. He just says that's the deal. So there is a hope. There's an agenda. It's, uh, John didn't put this down uh, unintentionally. He's simply saying, look, I wrote all this stuff down so that you would believe it. Right? So what I like about this, and I may have said this last week, I like how unbelief is assumed with John. There's this sense of he doesn't necessarily acknowledge that we believe it. 
Like he's telling the story of Jesus, and there's almost this assumption that we may struggle with that, that we may not believe that, or that we may not know about it. So there's not this kind of, you know, assumption that we're all on the same page. And so unbelief or struggle of belief or even doubt, for that matter, is assumed. Although it comes at the end of his letter, at the end of his account of the story of Jesus, it really is this invitation for us to hang around long enough so that we can hear the stories and see what the disciples themselves experienced with Jesus, around Jesus, the things they heard, the things they saw, and the things that they went through with him. And so I love how he ends uh, the letter. And I know we use this passage a little bit, maybe too often, but it just reminds us that um, we're kind of called and invited into the story uh, that the writers of the Gospels put down for us so that we can learn about it, and the goal is that we believe it. Now, John begins his Gospel saying these words in uh, verse 14 about Jesus, that the Word became what? Flesh. Made it yellow for you so you could say the right word. Uh, let's do that again. The word became, yeah, I put the Greek there in the brackets, sarks. Isn't that a great word? We'll talk about that in a moment and, uh, and, what, that, and what that means. But this is how he begins his story. And so one of the things that the writers of the gospel do is that they try and tell us over and over and over again in some way and somehow that God became a man. Now, right there, everything goes out the window in terms of logic, of things that we can understand. Like, that doesn't make sense no matter what you put to it. Like, the theological term for that is the word incarnation. But who cares? Like, what does that mean? We're still talking about something that isn't possible. And incarnation is just shorthand, again, uh, a shorthand attempt to explain what's not possible. That God somehow wrapped himself in skin, and he was born into the world 2,000 years ago in ancient Palestine, and he, uh, he grew up. Like, it's just extraordinary to think about. Like, if Mary didn't feed Jesus, God dies. It's really weird. I mean, he truly became a person. He lived as a man in the person of his son. You'll get that at lunch, by the way, uh, as you're eating. Um, oh, that is weird. He could, yeah, okay. Um, But it's not necessarily logical for us to think about those sorts of things, and it's hard to explain. And the writers of the gospel seem to know that. Like, they didn't really attempt to break it down for us. They just said, this is what went down. It's the claim that they made that God became a man in the person of Jesus, and uh, it's a claim that Jesus himself made as well. And it's a faith issue that we're all sort of leaning on and counting on the accounts of the friends and the disciples of Jesus. Now, this word... Sarks is so important because this isn't just like, you know, it's metaphor, but it's stronger than just like, okay, he became a man. But this word flesh is just really dirty, and it's really earthly, and earthy as well. It's not a word you use to describe the nature of God. It's not the thing you think about when you think about God. You don't think, oh, he looks like me. But uh, But this word flesh is, the writer is essentially saying that God really did become one of us, you and me, that he became a person. And that's what John is claiming here, that God became one of us, that God uh, became a man. That's extraordinary. And so the gospel writings, inside of them, there are plenty of stories of the divine nature of Jesus. And we'll get to those eventually, but none of them start that way. They all start 
with these very human stories. His birth, we looked at last week, and then today we'll look at this baptism, these examples of the human side of Jesus. And the gospel writings have a looping theme of incarnation. It just keeps coming up, like, oh, don't forget, God became a man. And here's another example of that. And the writers placing in their accounts these little small pictures that say that, like they point to it and say, here he is again. This is God becoming man. And one of those events, all that to say, one of those events was his baptism. And so if you have a Bible, Luke 3, uh, we'll look at a couple of verses here. That's cool. I heard two pages. That's good. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I just thought we'd bring our Bibles, but that was just me. Uh, of course, I put it on the screen. So that's my fault. I should not put them on the screen. That's you, okay. Uh, all right. So this is what it says. Luke says, as the people were in expectation, verse 15, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. So a little background for you. John, the Baptist, the baptizer, is the last of the prophets before Jesus. Really the hinge between the Old Testament and the New, as it were. And John is the last of these prophets. And as a leader and a teacher, he also had his own disciples. Some wonder if Jesus was one of his disciples, one of the people that sat under him. And so John has this following, and John has this life that he's living, but he's pretty much a prophet, speaking into the people of Israel. And one of the things that he was doing, or known for most of all, was that he was baptizing people. Which doesn't sound odd to us, but baptism in the ancient world was not something anybody did to you. It was just something you did yourself. The baptistries in uh, the Jewish faith don't look a whole lot different than ours, except they would have been concrete. And you would just walk yourself in there. You would put yourself underwater, and you would come back up by yourself. It was something you went through as a cleansing ritual for sin or some kind of physical impurity. Which is why no one was allowed to baptize you, because you, no one can touch you. There could not be any contact with anybody else, you know, much less, you know, lest it would become impure. And so John, really, as far as we know, is the first person to do this, to take people, you know, by his own hands and baptize them in the water, and in this case, in the Jordan River, which has all kinds of symbolic uh, meanings to it as far as, you know, the exodus is concerned about crossing from the old to the new, all these sorts of things that we're not going to get into today. But he's standing in the Jordan River, really at the crossroads of faith, and he's baptizing people left and right, which is why he gets the nickname or the Baptist, the baptizer, the immerser. And so there were questions, as Luke says, uh, among the people that were following him as to whether or not John was the promised Messiah. Now, he was a voice of social and religious reform, so it was natural for people to wonder. I wonder if this is the Christ, if this is the Messiah, because the early understandings of Messiah is that he would be political, is that he would make shifts in culture. And uh, so they began to wonder. But John, in verse 16, notice what he says. He kind of put those thoughts to rest. John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, it was customary when you went into somebody's home, you took off your sandals. If it was a wealthy person's home, a servant would come and untie your sandals. So John is saying, 
I'm not even that guy. I'm not even worthy of the job of untying the sandals of, although we know his name is Jesus, but of Jesus who is coming following me. And then he starts talking about his own baptism. I'm baptizing you with water, but he who is coming is greater than that, and he will baptize you with fire. Now, I want you to know that I know of no church in the world that baptizes people with fire, right? That's not what he's saying. Water was seen as a cleansing agent. You just washed stuff off with water. You washed dishes. You washed your body. You washed your clothes. You washed your children. Water is seen as something that cleanses off the dirt. But fire was known as a refiner. Fire would cook out the impurities. Fire was greater than water in the sense of cleanliness because it would burn it out. Does that make sense? And so John is just simply equating the two baptisms. Like, Jesus is going to baptize too, although he'll renovate it a little bit and give it some different meaning, but essentially it's going to be greater because I'm just throwing you in the river here, which is already dirty. It's mostly symbolic, et cetera, et cetera. But Jesus is going to come along and it's fire. It's going to refine you. It's going to cook out all that is bad. And so John is saying, hey, what I'm doing here is really nothing compared to what Jesus will do. And then in verses 21 and 22, it says, Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. A quote from Psalm chapter 2. Now Luke doesn't give us a whole lot in the baptism story. Matthew gives us much, much more. But Luke just says, here are the facts, Jesus was baptized. Now in the Matthew account, Jesus and John have a little back and forth. John essentially argues with Jesus saying, you need to be baptizing me. This is completely upside down. And then Jesus says a few things back to John, and then John concedes. He yields. He ends up baptizing Jesus. But at the end of the day, it was a head trip for John because John is saying before all that happens, this guy is greater than me. His baptism is greater than the one I'm doing. It's about fire. Mine's just water, all that sort of stuff. And then here comes Jesus saying, I want to be baptized with your baptism. And John's like, what? And then they have this sort of like back and forth about uh, how that's supposed to work out and why that shouldn't be the case and why you should be baptized in me, etc. And then Jesus, you know, does something and then John baptizes him. Now, Jesus is here in our story in the Jordan being baptized by John with all those other people. This isn't a solo, private thing. And the question is, why is this story so odd? I mean, it is very, very odd. Well, for starters, again, baptism was something you went through as a cleansing ritual. Again, either for sin or some physical impurity. And in the case of John's baptism, which he states earlier in our text, his was a baptism of repentance. The word is metanoia. It means a, a shifting of the heart and the mind, a total shift of thinking. And repentance is about going a new way. It's about putting to rest the old things. And so there's Jesus standing in the river, which at this point with John is a symbol of human brokenness, a place of humiliation. Baptism was done in public, and it's humiliating for several reasons. One, if you're being baptized, everybody knows that you're making an announcement that you need to be baptized. And in John's case, I need repentance. Like, so if you're standing in the river with John, all your friends and family 
Either they know or they don't know what was going on in your life, but you're saying to everybody around you, I need to be in here. I need to be cleansed of whatever it is. And so it's humiliating in that respect just because you're making, you're making an admission of guilt, of the need for grace and mercy. It's also humiliating because, let's just be honest, unless you're a shampoo model, nobody looks good coming out of a river. Like, it's just, it just doesn't work out that well for most of us. It's one of the leading things we encounter when we talk to people about baptism. You would think it would be theological, but it's really about embarrassment. I don't, I don't want to get wet. Okay. <laughs> so sometimes we do them in private just for people who struggle with that. But it's just humiliating on all sorts of fronts. And so the question becomes, like, so why did Jesus do that? Why did he get baptized? Well, the writers of the Jesus story were careful, very careful, not to have Jesus doing anything miraculous or Messiah-like until after his baptism. There's nothing extraordinary up until this point. Nothing is happening. His baptism was, by all accounts, the beginning of his ministry. Right? This is where it all began to take place for him. That baptism, for us, is a sign and an act of a new commitment. It's the moment that we announce that our faith uh, and trust in God and his ways is you know, that his ways are over our own. And again, to repent just simply means to transform your thinking, a change of mind and heart, that everything old is gone and that there's a new direction for life. It's God's direction. And so for Jesus, it wasn't a repentance of sin, but it was this announcement to John and the people on the banks of the river, to everyone watching, and obviously to his Father in heaven, that his ways would now be God's ways. Not that they weren't, but Jesus is fully human. He has the capability of second-guessing. He has the capability of struggling and dealing with doubt. He has the capability of feeling pain and confusion. And there's this moment where he steps into the river and makes this announcement that the mission that he had been given to fulfill, that he will do. That he will yield everything to his Father. And that he will give up his own rights, his own plans, whatever it is. So that he was committing himself fully to the mission of those people. And the other thing that's going on in the river is Jesus is connecting very deeply with the human story. I mean, it's almost like he's in the river for no other reason than symbolism that he needs to make this announcement that what he's been called to do, that he will do. He will put to rest any other plans that he might, may have ever had. But also by standing in this river among, we'll just use the word, other sinners, that he's standing among them and being baptized among them and with them. He's making this statement of solidarity, of like, I'm really in this with you. Uh, many of you know, uh, let me show you a photo. Go ahead and bring out the picture. Um, this is a picture of me and a friend. Uh, I think it's 1991, so it's pretty old. You can see the weave belt on my friend Dave. Uh, hanging down like a tie. Nobody? Okay. Um, that's me and the leotards. So I'll give you the story here in a moment. But one of the things that you're told to do in youth ministry is be cool, right? 
Um, <laughs> I'm not very good at that, so I can just be stupid. But I'll have to tell you this story in a minute, but let me, let me start by saying this. I had to go to a lot of things in youth ministry. Like you go see the kids' plays, you go to their baseball games, you go to their football games, you go to their cheerleading competitions. We went to a lot of those. Um, I mean, it was just, I mean, you really, and like the junior high girls basketball games, like the halftime score, two to zero. It's just, it's really rough. It's really rough. And um, so you went to all those things, which was fine with me. It was great. Uh, you got to see what kids were like outside of church. So it was kind of fun to, you know, watch all that. And I didn't mind going to those, but the thing I just could not stand doing, and I had to do it often, was going to lunch at a kid's school. Like, is that, some, is that the, the creepiest thing ever? Like, here comes this sort of older guy sitting at your table. I mean, the school lunchroom is already bad. It's all, I, don't, I can't deal with the economic, academic, uh, you know, racial, eth, you know, ethnic, uh, you know, separation. Of all these, there's all these people at different tables. I just couldn't deal with that anyway. And then to walk into that and, like, try and be like, hey, I fit in here. Like, it was just really strange. And, um, and every time I, and I went, I, I went, but every time I went, it was me at the table with, you know, the one kid who invited me to come and all of his friends are around just, they stop talking when you sit down, right? And, uh, that should tell you something. And so they, you know, they're just staring at you. So I'm just kind of, I'm kind of a laid back guy. So I'm just kind of, so how's it going? You know, I love square pizza, corn, milk. It's great. Uh, <laughs> But there was always another youth pastor there, and we'll just label him as that guy. Uh, he's, he's on the other side of the cafeteria, and he's got, like, he's, he's got the market. On, like, he's making the milk carton talk. He's throwing food. He's funny. He goes to all the football games. He's like, hey, Bob, you know, and I'm just the other guy um, wanting to get out of there. So... But this one time, my, another guy on staff with me that was a youth pastor, he loved going to lunches. Like, he was so good at it. And so I said, man, will you go with me? I just don't, I just don't want to go. And um, he said, yeah, sure, we'll go. So we go to Chick-fil-A, and we, we buy a bunch of sandwiches. And we're like, oh, we'll pass them out. This was not my idea. It was his. I was like, let's just go in, say hello, and get out. Um, but I love the kids. The... Um, so we take the Chick-fil-A, we go into the cafeteria, we sign in, we go into the cafeteria, we walk in, and we sit down, and all these kids are really excited that we brought Chick-fil-A, and who wouldn't be? And we start to eat, well, in come the school police, um, and they take us out. So here we are, it's already awkward, and now the school police are escorting us out, uh, you know, and everybody's like pointing and laughing. Uh, and then they pull us into the office, and the principal, she goes off on us because we brought in outside food. But we're like, yeah, but it's Chick-fil-A. And um, so she's, like, really upset and telling us we can't do that or whatever. So we, we offer her a sandwich. And she's like, okay. And she takes a sandwich. <laughs> and then, uh, so here we are sitting in the principal's office. And then she goes, who are the boys you're here to see? And we name them off. So she goes into the cafeteria, and she gets them. And then they come into the principal's office, and we're having a feast around the principal's desk with Chick-fil-A, et cetera, et cetera. So, like, it was awesome. Um, what was I talking about? Oh, this photo. So this was in college. I was a freshman. The guy on uh, the left had a speaking gig, and he said, I need you to come, and you can help me. I just do something funny. So we came up with this uh, top ten list of the, the top ten worst superheroes of all time. 
things like Math Man, Really Bendy Thumb, all those sorts of things. And the number one was Banana Man, which whatever that means. And we, we named it Banana Man because we found yellow leotards. So I was like, I'll put these on, and when you say Banana Man, I'll run out and just be a Banana Man. Like, I'll just, whatever that means. And so I, he says, number one, Banana Man. And I run out, and nobody make a sound real quick. No, that's too much. It was so quiet. But I'm trying. You can see I'm dancing. I'm doing my thing. Uh, Dave is laughing. It's, just, it's falling apart in front of us. Now, his girlfriend was there, and she was able to get a photo of the crowd while I'm doing this. Next slide. There it is. <laughs> Do you see those two girls in the front? Like, <sighs> And then there's this guy. Like, what? I didn't know if he was going to beat me up. Like, I didn't know what was going to happen. This is a rough gig, man. This is a rough. You guys look like that sometimes. I just want you to know. But, yeah, so this was my first lesson in youth ministry, which was it doesn't really matter how hard you try to be one of them. You're never one of them. Never. Like, and it only gets worse because you just get older. And no matter what you do or how you do it, you're just always that creepy guy trying to fit in. And when I read this story of Jesus standing in the river, it's really interesting to me because this word solidarity just keeps coming back up. And I don't want you to miss this because it's deeply profound and the implications of Jesus' baptism are far-reaching, that he was literally and physically connecting himself to the human condition. Like, I can go eat lunch at a school, but I'm not, like, quitting my job and becoming a student again. It's not what I'm doing, right? I'm not actually becoming one of them. I'm just observing, entertaining. But Jesus stands in the river, which, again, is a symbol of brokenness and the need for redemption, And so there's this sense of solidarity. He's standing with us and among us. It's really the first story that the writers of the Gospels give us that say, this is the kind of God our God is. That he is not above this. That he too was baptized with all the rest. Richard Rohr said, humanity has the right to know that it is good to be human good to live on this earth, good to have a body, because God and Jesus chose and said yes to our humanity. Or as we Franciscans love to say, that incarnation is already redemption. Just the fact that God became a man is enough for us to say it must be good to be his people. If he's going to do that for us, it must be good. Redemption has already begun just because he became a man. Notice what the writer in Psalm says in verses 13 and 14 of 103. It's this picture of a father. He says, as a father shows compassion to his children. So we're comparing God to a father, which isn't easy for everybody. But just always think about this is the perfect scenario. And as a father has compassion for his children, he says, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And then he says something very interesting here, that God knows our frame, the way that we're built. He knows our structure as a person and that we are dust. And the word there for dust is more uh, 
about broken pottery or clay. That we're just in pieces. He knows that. He's not removed from that. He gets that. Paul would say something to the opposite uh, in the New Testament when he says that we have this treasure in jars of clay. The most brittle of all clay jars, right? We have this treasure in jars of clay, like God lives within broken people. Cracked, taped together, glued together people. Like he's fine with that. He knows that. He, he remembers that that's what we're made of. And prior to Jesus' baptism, again, no writer of the gospel story has Jesus doing anything miraculous. That'll come. They'll get to that. But it's kind of like they want us to see this first. Before you follow God, before you ask any more questions, we want you to see this first. We want you to see what God did. For us to see what kind of God ours really is, that he would wrap himself up in skin and become a person to be born just like us, which is the most human of all experiences, and grow up like us. And then to stand there in the River Jordan, a place of humiliation and awkwardness, a place for broken people, a place for those who want a new start, a place where it's fairly impossible to be alone separated from anyone. And to stand there in the river for baptism was to admit a connection with the human condition. And there's Jesus doing the same thing. Again, quite a head trip for John, but necessary in the mind of Jesus. As if he was saying, look, I didn't come here to pretend to be with you. I really came to be with you. It's not a, it's not a game but I'm here among you. It's the first story of the gospel writers saying, this is what it means for the word to become flesh. That Jesus' baptism, among many things, is a symbol of God becoming one of us. It's a one of us moment. And consequently, it's one of the things that we do to become one of his. Jesus becomes one of us in his baptism, which ends up being the way we become one of his. And the application to this, if there is one, is that the writer is inviting us to think about something very deeply. And it seems fair enough to believe that if the God of the universe really did become one of us, shown in so many ways, not least his baptism, we've looked at today, if the God of the universe really did become one of us and come here among us, then it's safe to believe and safe to say that we're probably getting the message that it's possible to become one of his people. I know of no other God in mythology or ancient religions that reaches out to people. Not in this way. Not for any other reason except that he just loves us. There's always a, a debit and credit sort of thing with the gods. But Jesus just comes, wrapped in skin, standing in a river of baptism, which is about really the human condition, the need for repentance, the need for redemption, and saying, I didn't come here to pretend to do this. We're doing this together. And one of the things that 
Um, I love when we do baptisms here, A, is that everybody just cheers and whistles. It's a lot of fun because it really is a new start for people. It really is a new thing uh, for those who do it. But we just try to tell them that same story. Like, Jesus did this. Obviously, there's precedent there. But most importantly, this is about a new relationship that you have with God, an announcement that all things are new for you, that you're heading in his direction, trying your best to follow him, and saying to everyone in this place, the old ways are dead, the old colors are gone. It's a new day, new creation. And so as we take communion together, uh, let this be a few minutes at least. I mean, there's really nothing more human than that. You know, you take the bread, the juice, it's physical. You eat it, you drink it. It's something Jesus called us to do when we meet. And it reminds us of his humanness. It reminds us that he lived and he died. And then there's this amazing part about the resurrection. And as Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, like when we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do it as a way of remembering those things, but also to sit and to live in hope of his return. Communion is always the thing that we're doing, and we just do it between the two advents, between the first coming of Christ and the second. And we do it to remind us that this story is real, that this story is worth trusting. When we read the gospel writings, we're reading from people who were there, who witnessed it, and they want so desperately for us to believe it. And so for some of you, communion may be those moments each week when you're reminded of that. It's a, it's a, a, a refill for you. And so let me pray, and then you can uh, sit and reflect for a few moments and then make your way to one of the four tables, uh, and then we'll sing together in the end. Father, thank you for this morning, and thank you for this story. Just the humanness of Jesus standing in the river among those who truly needed baptism, taking part in the human story at, um, at the deepest levels, with the word truly becoming flesh, with skin, emotions, a mind. And God, thank you for just that example of him trusting you and fulfilling the mission that you gave him. And ours, Father, the the life that you call us to live is far less complicated than his. It's 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 not as difficult. But you do call us nonetheless to trust him and to follow him, to live his ways. And God, as we do that, we make announcements about who you are to our neighbors, to those we work with, by the way that we love, the way that we work, the way that we relate to people, the way we raise our kids. That we're making announcements about who you are. And so, God, as we take the bread and the juice just now, let it be a reminder from you to us that you love us so greatly and deeply. But also let it spur us on to live the kind of lives that you've called us to live. And it's in your name that I pray. Amen.